Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 19. We are moving right along in terms of the episodes since I started this podcast back in the summer of last year. <clears throat> so in these last two, or in the last two episodes, I reviewed cues for both standing poses and poses on the ground. And I cannot believe how popular they've been. And I log in every day and I've watched the downloads on my podcast website uh, just climb daily. So I'm back today to run through four more poses. I think four is a good number uh, to do per episode to not overwhelm you or I with the content. <clears throat> and it'll give you something to mull over from episode to episode. Uh, I'll just give you a heads up. Next week, uh, I'm gonna take a break from the posture breakdown and bring on a guest, uh, international yoga teacher, Kat Fowler. She is going to be my guest on the podcast next week. So look forward to meeting her. She's going to give us a really interesting look uh, at kind of her transition over the years um, as she has really shifted her teaching. And, and I'll just kind of leave it there, a little bit of a cliffhanger there, and uh, encourage you to stay tuned for that episode to launch um, It'll be recorded next Friday, so it will be launching in the following week early on. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to get into a handful of additional poses. And <clears throat> I want to start out with just a couple of announcements. I'm recording this on March 15th, 2019. And like all episodes, and like I just mentioned, uh, once I record the episode, it takes about a day or two to be posted so you can listen to it. And this coming Monday, March 18th, 2019, I start my weekly anatomy challenge in my anatomy Facebook group. And that Facebook group is called the Bare Bones Yoga Anatomy Work Group. 
And this is going to be a week long event that I'm hosting, which will involve daily lessons on my Facebook page and quizzes after each video I do to test your knowledge. There will be prizes as well. I got some really cool prizes and a few random winners will win these prizes just for participating and commenting on the videos. To get in on the challenge, all you need to do is go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and right there on the homepage, you'll see the link to join my anatomy Facebook group on Facebook. And you may already be in there. I have over 600 members in the group, and I'm really proud and really happy to have that little corner of Facebook where we can discuss anatomy. <clears throat> now, because Many times people are listening to the podcast and the timing may be off if I offer something that's time dependent, like what I just shared. I want to also offer you another thing that is, you know, it doesn't matter when you're listening to this episode. And, you know, it really has to do with <clears throat> if you're looking for ways beyond this podcast to grow your knowledge about anatomy, I'm going to suggest you check on uh, one of my online courses. This one is about the anatomy behind high to low push-up, and I'm suggesting this one because it's a movement we do so much in class, and to understand the anatomy behind it will really help your students because your cues will be so much better and your confidence will soar. To get this course, all you need to do is, again, go to the Go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and visit the courses link right on the homepage. Now, a few things before we get into the pose breakdown. I talked about this last time, and I want to reiterate it when we do these episodes on cues. The first thing is I'm not saying my cues are right, and I really have appreciated both on my Facebook page and the anatomy work group, my general Facebook page. Some of you have written me emails, you know, just questioning and just starting a dialogue about content that is shared in the podcast. I really welcome that. I am not saying my cues are right and the only way that you should share the practice. Uh, my cues are really just a suggestion and my opportunity and my attempt to start a conversation or at least a thought process in your mind as to what is the most effective way to help people move on the mat. And, you know, again, I, I, really encourage you to refrain from practicing when you're teaching and to really, really feel your feet on the ground. If you find yourself getting up into your head, getting nervous, getting self-conscious, those kinds of things and feeling that way can really interfere with your ability to see what's happening as you're rolling out these cues, as you're teaching. And so the best way for you to know if your cues are effective is to watch your students when you say what you say and see if they're taking the desired action. If they're not, it's a chance for you to try something different and see if that's more effective. And if you're a newer teacher, I would definitely encourage you to take notes after class about things that were effective so you can use them in future classes. So if you're, you know, looking for ways to um, absorb this information and then put it into practice and evaluate if it's working, really what you need to do is watch your students and really be present as to what's happening right in front of you. And that's a great way to see if your cues are working. So as we go through the poses, I'm going to focus on the cues, 
but there are, of course, other things to review for each pose. So I want to break down what we should look at to get at a good overall sense of the posture. So we should look at the primary action, the key actions, the key muscles in action, the key joints in action, modifications or contraindications, i.e. reasons not to do it if a person has a particular condition, things to look for as a teacher or anatomy challenges. And then the last thing is speaking to mind, spirit, and attitude, because we're not just teaching from the physical sense. We're teaching from the spiritual sense. We want people to tap into how they're feeling, how yoga is affecting them. So there are all those different aspects that go into looking at a posture. Now, today, since we're going to be talking about cues, we're really just looking at one piece of that list I just gave you. We're just looking at the key actions. But if you're looking for the full breakdown, an easy way is to buy my anatomy manual. It gives you this format for each of the key poses, and you can get it on my website for only $65. So I'll include the link in the show notes, and you can just click it there or visit the website, go to the books page. It's a great, great tool to have and it will really support the content you're getting here on these episodes about cues. Also, I'm gonna include in the show notes, again, a link to my webinar on cues, because I really believe that there are four specific kinds of cues that we can share as teachers, and it can be helpful to categorize them in this way, and then you can make a determination when you go into a class as to what category of cue would be most helpful in, helpful in what scenario. I'll tell you that sometimes I go in to teach and I notice within the first four or five minutes that I have a lot of beginners. I decide right then and there that I'm going to use a particular kind of cue primarily. And that cue is an action cue. Action cues provide a one or two word action that the student can do. They're super understandable. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. They're words that primarily uh, connote action, doing the thing. There are also alignment cues. These talk to the shape of the pose. And again, they are action-based, but they can um, require a little more knowledge and familiarity with the shape, with the posture itself to do it or to understand it. And then of course, there are uh, anatomical cues. And that's a lot of what I share in classes because my passion is sharing anatomy. And my challenge to myself and also the challenge I pose to teachers when I teach them anatomy is how can we make this complicated subject more easily understandable? And so I'm always looking for ways to come up with different cues that teach students what is happening in the body, what dynamic movement is happening, what the shape of the joint is, how can we leverage that shape of the joint in order to create the right action, what's that bone, what's that muscle even, right? So I really am always looking for ways to share anatomy. So those are, of course, anatomical cues. And then there's feeling-based cues. These are cues that you find oftentimes in restorative classes. They speak more to the sensations people are having in the body. I always caution teachers around using verbiage like, you should feel. Um, and I really encourage them to simply say, how do you feel, right? You can just feel the difference in energy there. As a student, when they hear, and I'll just speak from my own experience, and a student, when I hear, you should feel from a teacher, it feels very teachery. It feels very authoritative. When I hear, 
what do you feel in this pose? It feels very inviting. It feels very much like an inquiry question. It encourages and supports me as a student to ask myself that question and really helps me be more present. If I'm having a moment in that practice, in that class where I'm thinking about what I'm gonna do when I leave, or I'm thinking about a business problem I'm having, if someone says to me, how do you feel in this pose? All of a sudden it brings me back into the moment and it's an inviting or an invitation to get curious about what's happening in my body rather than having someone say you should feel and if my experience is completely different from what that person is saying, all of a sudden I feel this big disconnect. Now, I'm an experienced practitioner. If I wasn't an experienced practitioner, that disconnect, I can promise you, oftentimes is on the part of the student, turns into an assumption that they're doing it wrong. So again, I really, really caution you around any kind of language like that. And again, I am not saying I'm right. <laughs> I am only throwing that out there as a suggestion and giving you my rationale so that hopefully through you know, the comments that you leave or reviews that you leave or comments on my Facebook page, we can start a dialogue about these topics. So let's go here into the pose breakdown. So let's start with upward dog. Let's look at some of the key actions in Upward Dog, what the point of the pose is, and get into the cues around Upward Dog. So Upward Dog is a back bend, right? And you can just kind of tell from the shape, it's a back bend. And, you know, just the word back bend is a little bit of a misnomer because it's got the word bend in it that goes with the back. So people would say, oh, you're bending your back. <laughs> But in actuality, from an anatomical standpoint, what we're doing is we're extending the spine, right? So when some people hear extension, they think of something straight, right? And in fact, there is an anatomical term called axial extension, which refers to standing up tall in a Tadasana type shape, rooting down into your feet and drawing up through the crown of the head. And so that axial line, that axis of the body, which is the spine, you're extending along that line. So that's extension. And, and so again, we have to kind of keep in mind as we share terms in our teaching, if we want to be true to the anatomy, sometimes we have to actually provide a little explanation. So now that we know the main purpose of Upward Dog is spinal extension, um, we can start to think about what are some of the leveraging points that we have to extend the spine. And by leveraging points, I mean what's giving us the power to create <clears throat> that spinal extension. When I just gave you the example of axial extension as one of the types of extension you can do of the spine, I was speaking of standing into dasana, rooting into your feet. So the leverage is your feet, you're pressing off the ground, you're drawing up through the crown of your head. Here in up dog, what are the leverage points? Well, definitely your hands because it's a very arm emphasizing pose, meaning you're using your arms, but really the points of your arms that you're pushing off of the floor with are your hands. But what about your feet, right? You're also pushing off with your feet because again, keep in mind um, a fundamental concept 
in yoga poses is whatever is at the ground is most helpful in creating the shape of the pose or the right action in the posture. And so this is why as a teacher, it's really helpful to teach from the ground up regardless of the student's relationship to gravity, whether they're standing on their back, on their belly, or some other variation balancing. So when we teach upward dog, keep in mind as a teacher, we wanna to teach to the leverage points if we wanna create and give the student the best effort in lengthening, extending <clears throat> the spine. Again, a little confusing because we're saying back bend, but now you know that's spinal extension. So this is, this is what we're trying to do. So this is the, um, these are the four points that create the leverage. So the cue from those, from this logic here that I'm presenting is press down into your hands and also press into the tops of your feet. Now I want to bring in here another factor, which is that students are going to think of using the body part in the pose that is most obvious to them as a contributor of the effort. And so in a posture like upward dog, what do you think most students think is creating the effort in that posture or is creating the shape of that pose? Their arms. Right? They're looking at a pose like up dog and they're saying in, the, in their head, I'm gonna use my arms to generate the right amount of effort to create this shape, you know? And so that's true. You're definitely gonna use your arms, but don't let them forget about the contribution of their legs. And the contribution of their legs comes from pressing down into the tops of the feet to help the upper body, now you've got those four points of contact, two hands, two feet, to help the upper body uh, and the muscles in the back, right? So we're talking erector spinning muscles that run alongside the spine, create that spinal extension. But most students are gonna forget about the contribution of the legs because number one, <clears throat> they can't see their feet. And number two, right, so they can't see their feet so they don't really think about how can my feet help me here. But number two, they're looking at the more obvious part of the pose, the arms being the main contributor. <clears throat> and we also see this dynamic in things like plank and definitely in moving from high to low push-up and definitely in low push-up itself. So your cues to both hands and feet as leverage points using action words like push off the ground are going to be really, really important to create uh, just the right amount of, you know, backbending for that student. Now, let's talk a little bit about what's not working in this pose, because I hear this cue a lot. I hear things around the core. So, you know, I don't want to go off into... Um, too much of a tangent here, but let's keep in mind just a general anatomical principle. In order for me to be extending my spine, those muscles are contracting in order to create the back bend. So muscles work in partnership. When, when one muscle is doing, or group of muscles is doing one action, there's another group of muscles, <clears throat> or a muscle primarily, that does the opposite action. So here, as I extend my spine using the erector spinae to create spinal extension, those muscles are contracting. 
the muscles that would draw me into a crunch, like a, like a abdominal crunch, that muscle is relaxing. And that is primarily my rectus abdominis. So in order for the erector spinae to create spinal extension, thus contracting, thus acting as the agonist in the back bend, the antagonistic muscle, which is the rectus abdominis, which is like your stomach crunch muscle, if you were to do sit-ups, that has to be relaxing. So there is no core action in the sense of a muscle contraction in general, right, when we're looking at up dog. So it would be inappropriate to cue your students to contract anything or to tense anything, or sometimes I, I just generally kind of hear cues occasionally around um, strengthen your core, something like that, right? We want students to relax the front line of the body, the core, in order to allow the agonists, the uh, spinal extensor muscles to create the back bend, right? Let's look at that also with respect to the muscles of the chest and shoulders. So most people generally know up dog is a heart opener, right? So again, spinal extensors are in action, creating the back bend. So we're stretching the front line of the body. So if we're stretching the front, right, we have to be contracting something in the back. So here, as we draw, as we come into up dog and we draw the shoulder blades closer together, we are contracting the rhomboids that adduct the shoulder blades and closer to the spine. The um, antagonists to the rhomboids are the pectoral muscles and some others. So we're stretching those. So that gives you a sense. One last thing I'll, I'll just add in here. I don't really care if their thighs are on or off the ground. I know sometimes that comes into play. Generally speaking, the more action they use pressing off their hands and feet, their thighs are going to lift. But keep in mind, if we're cueing them about their core, using their core, throwing in stuff about their core, <laughs> they're going to start squeezing the belly button into the spine, and that's going to start to create hip flexion. And that's where you see some people, this is always curious to me, when you see some students coming into up dog, but you can tell they're kind of contracting their core a little bit. So their thighs are lifting off the floor and they're starting to lean forward. Gotta let them relax the core. You can even just say, relax the core, relax your belly. Don't need to use the belly here. We're trying to stretch the front line, contract the back line. So let's wrap this up into, um, into the cues, right? So now that we've broken it down, we understand a little more about the anatomy. So let's say we were laying on the belly. Let's say we had them come in the first high to low push-up, just come all the way down to the ground. So the first thing we wanna notice is that the hands are back enough because the elbows are over the wrists. If the hands are too far in front, the leverage is diluted. They'll try to push up from there, have no leverage. Gotta stack the joints. So as you draw the hands back, get the elbows over the wrists, hug the elbows in close to the body, so a little sidebar here, that's gonna turn on the serratus anterior that hugs the shoulder blades, the scapula, onto the back because of its uh, connection, rib to medial aspect of scapula. So as I hug the elbows in close to the side body, press down, lift the chest up, set the gaze forward, press into the hands, press into the feet, relax that center line of the body in front use the shoulder blades to draw in slightly closer to the spine. Notice the expansion across the front line of the body. How does it feel to open the heart center like that? Set your gaze ahead, take three deep breaths.
right? So that's just a general suggestion. There's probably dozens of way, ways that you can do that. One other thing I wanna mention before we move from this pose is the gaze point, since I just brought that up in the feuds. Encourage your students to look straight ahead. I remember a time when everybody was flinging the head up. I don't see that as much anymore, um, but it is helpful to encourage them have a little bit more moderate viewpoint in terms of their, I don't mean moderate viewpoint politically, but just have a more moderate gaze point, meaning that the neck is, um, meaning that the neck should be in just a natural position rather than a lot of extension, throwing the chin up to the sky along with the gaze or dropping the chin low. Just have students look straight ahead. This really supports the neck in a way um, rather than taking it to extremes. So if you see a lot of people flinging their head up, just speak to it in your cues. Set the gaze forward. And you can even say, hey, look, let's, let's just kind of set a more um, mild uh, gaze point straight ahead rather than way up or way down to really encourage balancing the head over the body and support the muscles of the neck, something along those lines. So if you find that you're cueing people to look straight ahead and they insist on looking up, give them the rationale. Sometimes that is what people need to change patterns of movement that they've had for a while. They need to know why. Why do you want them to do it different? Hey, give me a reason, teacher, <laughs> right? All right, so let's move on to side angle. So I'm gonna break down here side angle and then we'll proceed with the half bind. Um, so side angle lunge, you know, just by its nature, we're opening the body out to the side, we're taking a lunge, and then we're leaning the upper body over the front leg. So as soon as we do that, as soon as we take the upper body off its center line and we start to lean over to the side, anatomically speaking, that's lateral flexion. That's a side bend. So now we're looking at muscles like the quadratus lumborum, which support the lower back. They run from the ribs, lower ribs, to the top of the pelvis on both sides of the body. These are your side bending muscles. So when we come into any kind of side bend, we need to depend on the quadratus lumborum, the QL, to support the torso rather than letting the torso just hang down lazily towards the ground. But now students are fighting gravity. We've taken them off that nice center line where they're working in concert with gravity and we're tipping them over to the right. So now their upper body is hanging out there and they've got to use a lot of effort in the legs to press away from the ground as well as use the QL to support the torso as it hangs out there in space over to the side. And then if you travel along the length of the spine, what do you get at the end? You get the head right? And the head's about 10 to 12 pounds. So here too, the head is out there in space. The upper body is side bending. So many times the students that are unaware will just let the head hang down. So let's imagine here we have somebody uh, in downward dog. They step the right foot forward. They come into warrior two, and then we have them bring their right arm down to their right thigh. So we're going to do the variation of side angle, not with the block, but the variation where they have the right forearm on the right thigh. They take the top arm, the left arm up and over the head. So now they've got that left arm hanging out over the head. Sometimes you'll see it just flop down. So encourage people to keep it straight. We're depending, they're depending on their quadratus lumborum, the QL, to keep the torso kind of balanced over the upper body. 
And now from here, we're gonna take the um, upper arm behind the back. So as soon as we start to take the upper arm behind the back, what group of muscles are we lengthening? Let's take it from that perspective, because that's, I think, a little easier to understand. So we're lengthening, right? We're staying left arm now, taking the left arm up and behind the back. Um, we're lengthening the muscles in the front line of the body. If you kind of think of this pocket area on the left shoulder in the front, so we're looking at muscles like pec major, pec minor, subscapularis, which is an internal rotator, part of your rotator cuff, corticobrachialis, which is another internal rotator. These four muscles collectively turn the upper shoulder in as if we're hunching. Now we're opening the upper shoulder or externally rotating it, thus stretching those muscles. In order to externally, in order to stretch those muscles, lengthen them, just like I talked about in up dog with antagonistic muscles and agonist muscles, something's gotta be doing the work of contracting. So in this case, it's the external rotators that you find in the rotator cuff, teres minor and infraspinatus. So those two muscles are externally rotating the uh, left shoulder, and as a result, stretching those muscles I talked about before, the inner rotators of the shoulder. So what you'll notice, and because we understand, of course, that posturally our students hunch a lot, everybody hunches, you'll notice that when people take that upper arm behind the back, they turn that upper shoulder in, and you can see it as you look at them, because of course you're looking at them, right? As you look at them and you see the head of the humerus dumping forward, and you'll see how it pushes into the soft tissue of the rotator cuff, and it kind of sticks out. Sometimes I say to people, hey, out of your left eyeball there, see if you can see the head of your humerus, and lift it up and away. Make that pocket bigger, that whole area in the front, that whole space in the front of your left shoulder. Make that area bigger. Think about creating more area in that pocket space for your shoulder. Um, for the head of your humerus. Rather than letting it push forward against that soft tissue, take that head of the humerus back. So now we're encouraging them to externally rotate the upper shoulder. Do notice that if people go for the full bind, if they take their bent arm on the front thigh and they wrap the hand underneath, I think you know what I'm referring to, they're most likely gonna turn both shoulders in. This is really common. Students are sometimes encouraged to double bind because they see somebody doing it around them. But if they don't understand that the point of the pose is to open the shoulders, both shoulders, even that shoulder of the opposite arm that's leaning on the thigh, they're trying to open that shoulder too. So if you start to see them as you're looking at them, roll both shoulders in or even one of them, reiterate to them that the point of the pose is to open the front line of the body and both shoulders. So, hello, if you're facing the floor, you really need to see if you can generate more movement working backwards. So again, this is one of those things like saying to people, how do you feel? It's an inquiry question and it can really break their line of thinking if they're stuck in a particular way. So sometimes I say, hey, if you find that you're looking at the floor in this pose right now, Try to see if you can take your upper body back a little more to create more length in the front of the body. Okay, so let's go through how this would work. Let's go back to you're in downward facing dog, students are in down dog. Step the right foot forward, come into warrior two. Open your arms out wide, turn your chest to the left side. 
Let's come into side angle. Let's bring the right arm down to rest on the thigh. Bring your forearm to the thigh. Take the top arm up and over your head. And I want you to reach that top arm forward. Try not to let that top arm bend and get as long as you can through that upper arm. As you take a couple breaths, roll that upper shoulder back and keep opening up the front line of the body towards the wall that you're looking at. As we move from here into the half bind, take that upper arm behind your back. Don't worry so much about what's happening with that left hand. Bring your focus to your left shoulder. As you kind of peek out of your left eye, if you see that roundness of your upper arm bone at the top, the head of your humerus, if you see that rolling in, see if you can lift that up and away, creating more space in that front pocket area of that left shoulder. As you continue to hold the pose and lunge forward, keep your front knee straight ahead and over the heel. Keep strong in the legs, take a couple more breaths, and then release to plank, move through high to low push-up, right? So you kind of see how that goes. So again, this is just to all kind of keep it in line with the benefit of the pose is to open the front line of the body. We don't want people to come into side angle or its variations hunching. Okay, so let's move on with triangle and twisting triangle. These are the last two we'll do. So triangle pose, kind of like side angle uh, in that posturally, in that it is a side bend, right? We've just kind of removed the bent leg of warrior two, and we've replaced it with two straight legs. But it still very much depends on strength in the legs, pushing away from the floor, using the QL to hold the torso in space, using the muscles alongside the neck um, to keep the head position, just as if they were standing up. All we've done is tip them to the side, but we don't want their head to droop. So let's go into um, triangle from, let's see, let's go into it from warrior two. So first we're in down dog, step the right foot forward. Let's come into warrior two, open arms out to the side, right? And just notice here in your warrior two, your shoulders are stacked over your hips. So we're gonna kind of keep that alignment as we straighten the front leg and bring the right hand down to the leg and the left arm up to the sky. All right, so I'm gonna stop here and I wanna reinforce again and call back to the idea inside angle that we're trying to open the front line of the body. The same thing is happening here in triangle. So we want to watch for students who begin to hunch towards the ground. Now, what this pose has that side angle doesn't is a greater requirement in flexibility, um, in hamstring flexibility, because they have two straight legs. So the tighter their hamstrings are, and potentially the tighter the frontline muscles are as well, they're gonna hunch. But especially if they have tight hamstrings, they're gonna hunch because, um, and it's gonna be complicated further if their right hand is way down their leg, uh, because those, Hamstrings are tight and they're going to be encouraged to kind of punch in towards the floor. So this is where the block comes into play. I always, always, always encourage the block be behind the front leg and not in front. If you're a super practice student, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. But for most students, what's going to really help them open that front line and compensate for tight hamstrings is using a block, maybe even two, and putting it behind the front leg. Now again, this is one of those things where I encourage you to share your rationale with your students because they're 
many times going to go into classes. No one's going to say anything about where the block should go. No one's going to give them the rationale. So they're going to figure what difference does it make? I'll put it in the front. This is your chance to explain, hey, one of the great benefits of this pose is to open all the muscles in the front line of the body that get really tight when we hunch a lot. If you find that you're hunching towards the floor, take the block and put it behind your front shin, maybe even stack them, press away from that block and see if you can get your arms to align in one straight line. Once you get there, take a couple of deep breaths and see if you feel more space in the front of your body, right? Rather again than saying, you should feel more space. You should feel blah, 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 blah. Just say, see if you feel, do you feel, how do you feel? right? So you've given them the rationale, you've given them the cue, you've given them the block placement. It's this really nice, nice package. It's up to them now, right? They don't do it, they don't do it. I used to get super hung up about block placement and go around and move people's blocks. Honestly, <laughs> just all you can do, people, is just share the information. And of course, it's a partnership to talk to them. So, you know, here we are in triangle. You can add some different things like a half bind of the upper arm. Uh, the one thing additionally that I would watch for in triangle is hyperextension of the front leg. It's really common as they press away uh, off of their legs. It's very common for that front knee to lock. And as that front knee locks, and even if it doesn't, you may also notice that the kneecap turns inward rather than being centered. And you'll also see this in warrior two. And so this can also um, uh, identify or highlight some weakness in muscles of the inner thigh, specifically the vastus medialis, that's part of the quadriceps that um, is on the inner part of the thigh and um, attaches to the patellar tendon, which of course attaches to the patella, the kneecap itself. So as students come into these side bending movements, if there is any potential weakness in that inner thigh, specifically that muscle, they may see some of that medial traveling, traveling to the midline of the kneecap. So it's a really easy fix. All you need to do is encourage them to bend the front leg a little bit, which already is good for the joint, not great for the joint to be locked. So have them bend that front knee a little bit, look at their knee, kneecap, and center the kneecap. It's a really cool thing because they literally can see the kneecap move and feel it move as they bend the knee and get a little bend in that joint, little give in that joint, center the knee, continue on with the pose, okay? So let's go back kind of wrap it up in a nice package in terms of doing. So from downward facing dog, step your right foot forward, come up into warrior two, extend your arms out wide. As you straighten your front leg, I want you to take a, knee, uh, take a look at your knee. Notice if your knee locks, you can also possibly feel it as well. If it locks, just back away a little bit from locking out and center your kneecap. Extend your upper arm straight up to the sky, Put the block behind your front shin and press away from the block as you press away from the ground using your legs as well. Notice how it feels to have opening through the front line of your body and take three deep breaths. Okay, so again, a suggestion, uh, a way to pull it all together. Okay, so as we come into this last one here, Let's take a look at a variation of triangle, the twist, the twisting triangle. So right out of the gate, um, I wanna bring up a particular 
piece or observation I've made over the years um, with twisting triangle. And that is the student who goes into twisting triangle and puts their hand on their lower back and holds their lower back in place as they come into the twist. I really, really discourage students from doing this. And I think this comes from an old notion that you need to have a level pelvis when you are twisting in poses. And if that's where you're coming from as a teacher or a student, I encourage you to get on the yoga mat, move around and twist and notice the difference between locking your pelvis in place in a twist and just letting it do what it naturally would do when you twist in like a seated chair twist or twisting triangle itself. Um, and notice what happens because in general, what I've seen happen, what I've read about, what I believe to be true in my own practice is that one hip will get a little higher than the other if we allow the pelvis to be movable as we twist instead of thinking of the pelvis and that's okay and that's what i'm saying that's okay because instead of thinking of the pelvis as the anchor in a twist right because we need an anchor in a twist we don't have an anchor to the ground in a twist whether it's a standing twist or a seated twist or something on the back we're gonna just roll we're gonna just roll over right you can see someone lays on their back hug their right knee into their chest twist over to the left, they're gonna just roll over like a rolling log unless they've got their upper body anchored to the ground. So you need an anchor in a twist. But what I'm saying, and I remember I read an article um, to this effect uh, many years ago, which I really, really, really love, is this idea of let's use the legs as an anchor rather than using the pelvis. Because if we think about the pelvis and the shape of the pelvis and the anatomy of the pelvis, what do we have in the back of the pelvis? We've got the sacroiliac joint. We've got the connection between the sacrum and the two pelvic bones. And friends, that is a joint. Just like the knee, just like the elbow, just like the shoulder and the hip, but it's a little bit of a different kind of joint, a little different kind of synovial joint where the bones are flat, but it is still a connection between bones. Anytime bones connect, that is a joint. So if we use a joint to lock down a pose and to create the foundation, and we're trying to twist the body around a movable part, many times the structures that support that joint will get strained. So if you kind of think about, as you're coming into the twist, you've got your hand on your lower back, you're thinking in your head, lock down pelvis, lock down pelvis, lock down SI joint, lock down SI joint. Meanwhile, you're turning your body to the right and the ligaments around your sacrum are like, why is this person locking me down? And they're turning, I need to move. So this is the dynamic that I want you to think about if you're one of those students and if you're teaching in a way where you're looking at your students and you're thinking their one pelvic, their one side of their hip is higher than the other, that's okay, right? That's just them giving some movability to the part of the body that's gonna move when they come into the twist, but watch their legs. Ensure that they have a good foundation, ensure that their feet are in a good position so that they can create foundation through their feet. So let's talk about that position. Because we're taking them into a twist, it's gonna be really hard for people if their feet are on the same line. So if you have them step the right foot forward from downward dog, come up into warrior two, or let's do it this way. Let's, um, 
let's come into triangle from pyramid pose. So let's say that they have the right foot forward, left foot back, they're in pyramid pose. And then as a teacher, you're thinking, oh, now I'm going to take them into twisting triangle. They're already in that kind of scissor-like leg where they're internally rotating their thighs. They have two blocks on either side of the front leg. Let's say it's the right leg. And we're going to just now shift them into the twist, pushing off of the left arm to open out to the right. If they are in that pyramid shape and they have a narrow base and they and you take them into the twist, it's gonna be really hard for them to maintain their balance. Just remember a general rule here, uh, wider base is more stable, narrower is not. I talk about this in, in my most recent book, Structure and Spirit. That's one of the fundamental principles. Narrower um, bases require a, a lot more acumen and experience on the part of the practitioner. But in general, regardless of experience, right? Forget about that. Wider is steadier, narrower is not. Just remember it like that. So as we take people into a twist, we want to give them a little breathing room at the foundation. That's also going to really, really help all the uh, stuff I was talking about before with respect to the sacrum. So they're in, their, they're in their pyramid pose. Encourage them. Step your toe heel, your front foot a little over to the right as we prepare to move into triangle. Use your left-handed block. Press down into that block. Lift halfway up. So let's stop here. Why do we want them to lift halfway up? We want them to lift halfway up because, bing, we want to create some axial extension. Remember I talked about that at the very beginning? I love the way it's all dovetailed together. Did not plan this, friend. <laughs> Did not plan this. Axial extension, right? Standing up on the feet, drawing up to the crown of the head, uh, engaging the erector spinae muscles to create that spinal length, right? Not back bend, but there's still an action to create just that general long line up through the crown of the head. Here we wanna have that too, because we don't, we don't want them to twist if they're not really creating length along the line of the spine. So first have them press down into the block with the left hand, lift halfway up, lengthen forward through the crown of your head, right? So now cue them to the foundation, just like in the first pose where I was talking about uh, up dog, four points of contact, two hands, two feet. Here, press into your feet, press into your left hand, as you lift up and extend through the crown of the head, take the right shoulder and the right hip back. Because unless they start to do that backward movement, right shoulder, right hip, they're not gonna to start to bring the left shoulder forward and the left hip forward. So there is no twist. So encourage them, press down into the left hand, halfway up, lengthen through the crown of the head. Start to take the right shoulder back, the right hip back, as you twist to the right. Start to reach the right arm up to the sky, blah, 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 whatever other things you wanna add on. Remember, you're teaching from the ground up. Many students, when they know twisting triangle is coming, what do you think they're gonna do? They're gonna fling that right arm up right out of the gate. You do not want them to do that. Sometimes I even say, let's build this pose from the ground up rather than the top down. What is happening at the ground in this pose will completely inform the rest of the posture, will completely change your experience in this posture, potentially, if you build it from the ground up rather than from the top down. So let's run through, let's run through kind of the whole thing. So we're in pyramid pose, we have the right foot forward. Okay, they've got two blocks on either side of the front leg. Use your left-handed block, lift halfway up, begin to lengthen through the crown of the head by pressing into your feet and pressing into that left arm. 
Take your right hand to your hip. Let's start there. Draw the right hip back and the right shoulder back as you continue to press down into the ground. Begin to reach your right arm up to the sky as you twist open to the right. Continue pressing into your feet, pressing into that left arm. Extend the arms as wide as possible. See if you can continue to turn your chest to the right and take three deep breaths. Okay, so there we go. I think this is a good place to stop. Um, as I said, I know there are a lot of poses to go through and I will continue with this theme in future podcasts. Again, reminding you that next week I'm gonna take a break and bring on yoga teacher Kat Fowler for an in-depth interview with her. So stay tuned for that. And I also wanna remind you, as I said in the beginning, my anatomy manual will walk you through all of this and more for each pose. So don't forget to visit the book page on my website to pick up a manual. So I wanna end like I did last time with a couple of action plan pieces here so that you can really hit the ground running. So number one, get really comfortable with action and alignment cues before you bring in the anatomy. And by God, please be comfortable with the anatomy before you bring it in. Don't just add in anatomy-based cues. If you don't understand them, if you heard them from other people, be sure you understand the anatomy before you teach anatomy in your cues. Teach from the ground up. Keep in mind that general rule, wider is steadier, narrower is not. Keep your cues simple and think of formatting each pose to three to five actions tops. Record yourself teaching or have a friend take a class and have that person give you some feedback after. I think that would be a really nice experience. Um, just have a good friend um, take a class and see, give you some feedback after. Keep watching your students as you teach to see how the cues are landing. If you don't see what you want, make one effort to reword it, and then if not, just move on. And if you're a newer teacher and you're teaching by practicing with your students, please start to make the transition to teaching without practicing. This will give you a really good opportunity to see how your cues land on your students. So here are three specific ways I can help you. Number one, set up a consult with me for a half hour call. We'll go over what your biggest challenges are when it comes to learning anatomy, and I'll create a customized plan for you. Set it up by emailing me right off of the website, barebonesyoga.com, and you're gonna see the offer for a consult peppered throughout the homepage. Review my webinar on cues. I'm gonna include the link notes and purchase my anatomy manual and go through the poses section. Try out my cues and make notes afterwards about how they felt, how they worked out, and make notes for each one with any change that you like. So we reached the end of the podcast today. Please leave a comment. Wherever you're listening, leave a comment. I would love, love, love to hear from you. So thank you so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. I really appreciate you as an online podcast community and elsewhere. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Namaste.